to turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. We've been looking at how God revealed to His people of old the coming of Christ, encouraging them to trust in Him and in Him alone. Last time we looked at Leviticus 16, which spoke of the regulations God had established for those suffering from leprosy. Leprosy was a disease which was really representative of sin. It left a person physically defiled in a way that others could see and avoid. And so the person with leprosy was cast out of the camp or out of the city until God should choose to heal him. And should God choose to heal him, then he had to be ceremonially cleansed, first outside the camp and then so that he could be restored to the people, and then at the tabernacle so that he could be restored to God. And the chapters that follow that set forth quite a number of other ceremonial laws and commandments concerning the cleanliness of the people, concerning the worship they were to bring, concerning the, the, role, the role of the priests. And then we come to chapter 23, and here we find a, a section of summaries concerning the feasts which God's people were to celebrate throughout the year. We're going to find that there are seven feasts, not counting the Sabbath, which is mentioned first. There are seven, the perfect number of feasts that God's people were to celebrate each year. Listen, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you, and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day, when you wave the sheaf, a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma. And its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hin. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. And you shall count for yourselves from the day of, after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. 
They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. And you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. And you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days." You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. Amen. Beloved of God the Father through Christ the Son. Church before the coming of Christ was obviously quite different than it is today. There were some similarities. They gathered each Sabbath day 
near their homes where they would join with the people of God in hearing God's Word read and explained, in singing together the Psalms, in praying to the Lord. But the the Word that was proclaimed to them was a Word that spoke in figures and shadows. A Word that pointed forward to something that was indistinct, that they couldn't see all that clearly. And so it was essential that God combined that word with images, which they would see regularly, which would proclaim that which the law and that which the prophets were hinting at, were were speaking of in veiled terms. These images would demonstrate to God's people the Savior in whom they must trust, the faith that they must embrace, and the blessing for which they must long. That was the purpose of Israel's feasts. And it was to summarize those feasts that this chapter was written. Now, a couple of things should be noted right up front. First of all, we noted that the chapter begins with a call to the Sabbath, a reminder of Israel's obligation to honor the Holy Day every week. Now, that was an important part of their worship and of their identity, of their relationship with God even. But we're not going to deal with that this morning. Lord willing, we'll talk about that somewhat next week. But this morning we're focusing on the feasts, the annual feasts and these alone. Furthermore, you'll you'll note in what we've just read a distinct lack of detail. Each feast is described briefly at best before moving on to the next feast. That doesn't mean that God left all the details of these religious celebrations for the people to figure out on their own. He explains those details elsewhere in the law. For instance, Numbers 29 describes in great detail the feasts or the, the, the sacrifices that were brought at various of these feasts. This chapter doesn't deal with the details because this chapter isn't really focusing on the priests. It's not really giving the, the instruction for how these feasts are to be carried out. It's speaking to everyone broadly. To the, the farmer and the tradesman. To the, the carpenter and the potter and the herdsman. So that all of God's people might be on the same page about when they are to show up, when they are to gather, and how they are to bring their worship at that time. And so the details are left to another place that God's people must might focus on the big picture. And the big picture is what we're going to focus on for our time this morning. Because the big picture is all about Jesus. These seven feasts of Israel were given as shadows that reveal the Savior's love. And that's the theme that we see here. Israel's feasts were given as shadows to signify the Savior's love. And the first of those shadows that we see is the Passover, which centers upon the Lamb who rescues from enslavement. The Lamb who rescues from enslavement. Notice the the feasts here are written in or are listed in chronological order. The first being the Passover, which occurred in what used to be the seventh month, month which God uh, redesignated as the first month. And we've already discussed the Passover ceremony. So we'll just hit it quickly. Notice, or recall, if you will, that 
the people were to take for each family a lamb, a yearling lamb that was unblemished, or a kid from among the goats. They were to take it to themselves on the 10th of the month, of that first month, and they were to keep it until the 14th. On the 14th, they were to slaughter the lamb, and they were to roast it over a fire. It was to be eaten then, uh, along with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, while they wore their traveling clothes, their belt tied at their waist, their staff in their hand, ready to go, ready to move at a moment's notice. The first time this was celebrated was when God was delivering His people from Egypt and they had to be ready to move in an instant. And also that first time, the blood of the Lamb was used in a unique way. That blood was taken and it was used to paint the doorway, the doorposts and the lintel, marking that house to all who would enter as a house protected by the blood of the Lamb. And God God looked upon that blood And he passed by that house. He passed over its inhabitants. Rather than bringing the death that was entering every other house in Egypt, where the firstborn of every family would die, God passed by His people because of the blood. And then in the midst of Egypt's grief, He led Israel forth out of that land and out of their slavery. Israel in the Passover, was to look back at how God had delivered them, but also to look forward to a greater deliverance still to come. Deliverance from slavery not to men, but to sin. Deliverance from death, which is due to all who love sin. Deliverance that will come to all of those and only those who are marked by the blood of the greater Lamb, Jesus Christ. Passover ultimately pointed forward with the promise of rescue from our enslavement to sin. And that's what Passover shows us even today. This is the Old Testament form of the Lord's Supper, which points us to Jesus, who John the Baptist announced as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He shed His blood that we might be freed from sin's slavery. He allowed His body to be broken that we might be fed unto life eternal through Him. Passover points us to Jesus, who is the only one who can rescue us from the sin that would destroy us, and who can nourish us for the journey through this wilderness unto the ultimate promised land. When we think of Passover, brothers and sisters, we need to think of Christ, whom Revelation 5 calls the Lamb who was slain, who redeemed us to God by His blood. And note well that Passover reminded Israel that that rescue from slavery requires response. If God's people were to be delivered from Egypt and saved from their physical slavery, they had to obey God, didn't they? They had to take that lamb and slaughter it on the 14th day. They had to paint the doorway of their house with the blood. Or they wouldn't be delivered from His wrath. They had to eat of that lamb. Or they wouldn't be nourished sufficient for the journey ahead of them. They had to trust God's promises and thereby obey His commands or the promise was not for them. And so it is for us, brothers and sisters. We must trust the testimony we've heard about Jesus. We must forsake every other source of hope this world offers. And we must believe that Jesus alone is able to deliver us from our slavery. If we do believe that, it will change everything. It will change the source of our hope. And the confidence that we hold, it will transform utterly and entirely the life that we live. And it's to teach His people that lesson 
that God coupled up the Passover feast with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That feast taught about the life that is cleansed from sin. This second feast began on the 15th day of the month, the day after Passover. And at that first Passover, God's people had no choice but to follow the stipulations of this feast. That is, to eat only unleavened bread, because they were being led out of the land of Egypt, carrying all of their possessions, drawing forth all of their children and grandchildren. They had no time to stop and allow their bread to rise, so they had to eat unleavened bread. But thereafter, God's people were to commend or to commemorate that deliverance annually for a week. There was to be formal worship on the, the first and the last day of the week. And meanwhile, their homes were to be emptied of all leaven. Kids, you remember what leaven is? It's that uh, the yeast that you put in bread dough that causes it to rise and become all kind of fluffy and have those little holes in it. Well, back then, they would keep just a bit of the dough from the last batch of bread. And they would add that to the new batch of bread because that little bit of dough had some yeast in it. And that yeast would spread through the dough, and so they would save a little bit more for the next time. But during this week, their houses must be cleansed of yeast. And that would remind them, God's deliverance is complete. Yeast represents that which grows silently within, transforming a person. Which is what sin does. Which is what the worldviews of unbelief do. Which is what the false gods of this world do. But God's people are to cleanse themselves of all of that and to fill themselves only with God and His Word and His purposes. Each year they must be reminded how complete must be their break from slavery and sin. It's not just about what they do, their outward appearance. It's about their heart. And really that was the promise of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that God would provide them the power to cultivate that life cleansed from sin. Anyone who seeks to live according to God's law for a time, they begin to see how comprehensive that law is and how deep is our sin. God delivered His people from Egypt by His own mighty hand. But then He also promised that by that same power He would deliver them from the, the, the slavery within he loves us so much that He refuses to allow us to continue to be held fast by those chains of sin. And that's what Jesus came to accomplish. He freed us from sin's enslavement. Not merely by paying the price for our guilt, but also by releasing us from the power of sin. Once we were unable to not sin, we were unable to choose to reject sin, but now through Christ, we have the power to say no to sin. But it doesn't happen overnight. You know, when you remove leaven from a house, you don't really remove all of it. You might get rid of that bread starter, you might get rid of those yeast spores that you know about, but the thing is, the spores of yeast are absolutely tiny, and they like to migrate, they like to drift through the air. Which means it's almost impossible to absolutely cleanse a house from yeast. And therein lies a lesson. Removing the leaven of sin is a process. Continually we find more sin. Continually we find new little enclaves, new little strongholds of sin. And so continually we must be cleansing our lives, even as Israel was continually cleansing their homes of yeast. 
And really that's the calling that the Feast of Unleavened Bread lays upon us. Having been freed from our enslavement to sin, now we're called to rid our lives progressively of sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That is the life, the unleavened life, which we as God's people are called to cultivate. And as we cultivate that life cleansed from sin, we experience the first fruits of life everlasting, which points to our third feast, the feast of first fruits. This was to be held as soon as the grain began to ripen. Now, in God's good providence, that tended to happen right around the time of the end of the feast of first or of uh, unleavened bread. And so what they would do is they would bring a sheaf of that newly ripened barley. They had two kinds of grains that they generally farmed, barley and wheat. The barley came ripe first, so they would bring a sheaf of that. They would bring it to the priest. The priest would wave it before the altar as a wave offering, and then it would become his property. And thereafter, after that wave offering, after the other sacrifices that were brought with that offering the people could eat of the new grain, and eat they did. This was a a feast of anticipatory celebration. In other words, celebration that looks forward to what God has promised, but we've not yet fully received. That's what first fruits are. They're the promise of something greater to come. When the farmer today brings in that first gravity wagon filled with, with corn or with soybeans, he's rejoicing. Because even though he knows there's a lot of work ahead of him, he knows there's a lot of reward ahead of him, right? That first bit shows him God has provided. And that's what this feast showed, that God and God alone can bring the increase we need. Now, surely that's true concerning the crops of the field. No farmer can ensure that his crop will bear richly. He can't cause all the seeds to germinate. He can't protect it from the weather or from from marauding animals. Only God can ensure that your investment in the field will receive a reward. And that's not only true with our crops. That's true of the work we put in regardless of what career we have. The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker all depend on God. Not one profession can stand on its own without God's blessing. Likewise, our parenting. You can plead and cajole. You can discipline hard or or try to be their friends. It doesn't matter what approach you take. You can't change their hearts. Only God can. And yet God can use even our imperfect parenting to bless our children. And you know what? That's true of life itself. This life, all of it, in every aspect, is meant to be preparation for eternity. But if we devote our time to sin, to rebellion, to worldliness, well, it's a loss. God alone can ensure that the life we live prepares us well to be His servants for eternity. And it was of that that Jesus was the first fruits. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read, Now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He died for our sins to save us, but then He rose to a resurrection life, a life filled with power and purity and perfection. 
And so we're told that as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Jesus is our first fruits. Today he lives a life of utter and complete perfection and power, the likes of which we can only long for. But because we are joined to him by faith, he is our first fruits. The life he lives promises the life we will live. Just as much as that first sheaf of barley was a promise of many, many, many other sheaves to come. That's the lesson of the Feast of First Fruits and the confidence that we can have because of it. But that leads us to the next feast, the Feast of Weeks, often called Pentecost. In that feast, we see the fuller blessing that foretells the Spirit. The Feast of Weeks came... 50 days after that first fruits offering was brought. Those seven weeks were just about perfect for bringing the harvest to completion. The barley would be brought in and threshed. Then, as soon as that was done, the wheat was ready to be harvested and brought in and threshed. And so at this time, the people of Israel would return to the tabernacle for another feast. They would present some of their new grain in the form of fresh-baked bread. They would bring... Together, they would bring seven uh, lambs, a bull, and two rams as burnt offerings. That was a big burnt offering. They would also bring a sin offering and a, a peace offering. But the biggest offering here was a burnt offering. And you might remember from when we talked about the Day of Atonement, the burnt offering, the focus there wasn't just on atonement. The focus there was on consecration. The focus was on belonging to God. Just as that sacrifice was not just consumed, but lifted up to God in its entirety in the smoke. So we are to be consumed with and lifted up to God as those wholly devoted to Him. Well, that's what the Feast of Weeks showed them. That they as God's people were to be wholly devoted to Him. When they presented that bread, that token of their crop, it was received and made holy. And as the, the token is made holy, so the, all of it is made holy. And so it is with our lives. God wants us, wanted, wanted His people then and wants us today to long for lives that are devoted to Him, that are holy, that are entirely reserved for Him. You know, the first time this date rolled around. It was before God had even given the uh, instruction for the Feast of Weeks. But the first time that 50th day after the first fruits rolled around was when God's people arrived at Mount Sinai. It was when they encountered God in the fullest way they ever had encountered Him. And it terrified them. It terrified them. They, they saw the smoke and the thunder and felt the ground shake at the base of the mountain. And they were terrified by the sight and the sound of the presence of God. But subsequent Pentecosts, subsequent Feasts of Weeks would remind them that God's presence is not terrifying for those who are in Christ. It's not terrifying for those who love Him. And so this feast would be fulfilled... By God coming to His people again. 
This time not to terrify, but to comfort. This time not to speak from afar, but to nurture from within. This was when the the Spirit was poured out upon the church. And when the Spirit was poured out upon the church, God's people received the fullness of the harvest of what Jesus had done, what He had accomplished. When He ascended to heaven, having accomplished their salvation, and then sent forth the power of the Spirit so that their lives could truly be changed. And that they could go and bring in the harvest of souls that He had earned. Brothers and sisters, with the outpouring of the Spirit, the power of Pentecost, the the fulfillment of the Feast of Weeks was upon the church and is upon the church today. Along with the full blessing of what Jesus has done. And it's by the presence of the Spirit empowering God's people to, to obey God as their King that the kingdom begins to come. And that's what we see in the fifth feast. The fifth feast, the Feast of Trumpets, was a proclamation of a kingdom established. There's really very little we're told about the Feast of Trumpets, not just here, but throughout the law. There's no explicit statement, this is the reason for it, this is what you're celebrating. We're left to infer that by what we know of the elements of the feast and also by what the Jews themselves understood about it throughout the years. Today, the the unbelieving Jews celebrate it merely as a a New Year celebration. They call it Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. It's the the head of the year. Because this was the start of the civil year, the seventh month, which used to be the first month before God changed it. And there were a number of elements to their celebration, but the chief one was a constant, ongoing, recurring theme of the blowing of trumpets. The silver trumpets that God had established for the temple, had caused them to build or to, to form for the temple, but also the shofar, the, the ram's horn trumpets. Now those trumpets really had two purposes in Israel. The first was to announce the coming of danger. Nehemiah had people stationed around the city with trumpets when they were being threatened by enemies. And he said, whenever you hear the trumpet, let everyone rush to the sound of the trumpet to defend the city. Trumpets would warn of danger. But they also called the people to attend either to their king or to the king of kings. So when Absalom wanted to proclaim himself king, he caused trumpets to be sounded throughout the land and people to stand up and say, Long live Absalom the king. When David brought the ark into the city, it was announced the coming of the king and of the throne of the great king was announced with the blowing of many trumpets. Trumpets signify here the coming of God in all His power as king. When uh, when God's people stood at the base of Mount Sinai and encountered that terrifying uh, presence of God before them, the overwhelming sound they heard along with the thunder was the sound of trumpets deafeningly blaring from the midst of the mountain. And when they entered the land at the command of God, their king, The first city they encountered was Jericho, which they walked around one time a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, after surrounding the city seven times, what happened? The trumpets blew, signifying the coming of God the King. And the walls fell flat. The 
The Feast of Trumpets was a feast of the kingdom and the coming of the fullness of the king. And that's what Jesus came to do. In Mark 1, we read that when Jesus came with the start of his earthly ministry, he came saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And at the end of his time of ministry, as he was about to ascend to heaven, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's the great king. Jesus established his kingdom, the one that that Israel had longed for, a kingdom that that blesses every land, a kingdom that draws to God every people who, who are willing. And one day soon that kingdom will be seen in all its fullness. As all of his enemies are put away and the heavens and the earth are renewed according to his purposes. So this feast calls us to rejoice in the coming of the kingdom which is on its way even now as people learn to love and serve God today. But of course we can't have him as king unless we've been restored from our sin unto him. And that's the purpose of the sixth feast. Now, this sixth feast, the Day of Atonement, it's a feast that brings the promise of perfect salvation. But we've already talked about that. We talked about that at great length. So we're just going to really quick recap. There were three lessons that God's people learned on the Day of Atonement. Kids, you remember this? It wasn't very long ago. There were three lessons that they learned. The first was that they were estranged from God. Because of their sin, they were cut off from Him. That's why they couldn't draw near to the most holy place. That's why there was that uh, curtain that separated off the throne room of God from everybody else. And that's why even the holy place, the outer court, couldn't be entered except by the priests. So not only were they cut off, but they needed a mediator to go for them to bring about reconciliation. But they also needed a perfect sacrifice. They needed a sacrifice greater than anything this world could provide. All of that pointed forward to Jesus. Jesus is the one who came and lived the perfect life for us. The life that we couldn't live. Jesus is the one who entered not just into a tabernacle made with hands to look like heaven, but into the true holy place, heaven itself. And he brought not the blood of goats and bulls. He brought himself as the perfect sacrifice, a man dying for men. When you consider the Day of Atonement, rejoice in Christ and the salvation He has brought. Think on how He loved you despite your sin, despite your unworthiness. Recognize His perfection that allowed Him to approach God for you and marvel that He would love you so much that He would give Himself as the sacrifice that would reconcile us to God. In the Day of Atonement, we see the promise of perfect salvation, which is ours in Christ. And that brings us to the seventh and final feast, the Feast of Booths or of Tabernacles. This feast was known for the booths which Israel built on those days. It was described a little bit in what we read there. Kids, you understand what happened here was on the first day of this week-long feast... And it was a celebration. This was, this was often called the feast because people loved it so much. It was the chief feast. The first day they would go around and they would cut branches off willow trees and, off, and palm fronds off palm trees. And they would, they would find some other uh, sticks and branches and they would build for themselves booths, little shelters that they would use to shelter them from the sun by day and from the cool by night. 
And they would live in those shelters for a week. Why? Because that's how the people lived out in the wilderness for 40 years. And so this feast was a reminder. God is the one who brought our people here. And when He brought them, He's the one who provided the food and the water they needed every day. He's the one who ensured their sandals did not wear out and their clothing did not become threadbare. He's the one who guided them every step of the way, defeated the enemies before them. What a beautiful reminder of how God perfectly provides. But it's also more than that. Because as He brought them through the wilderness, He was bringing them to a place of rest. And by causing them to live in those Booths for one week out of the year, God showed them you're still in the wilderness. You still haven't gotten to your rest. Yes, you're in the land. Yes, I've given you peace from your enemies. But you're not at spiritual rest yet because you still have sin. You still have rebellion. You're still surrounded by enemies and by brokenness and by sickness. You're not yet there. But brothers and sisters, that greater rest has arrived in Christ. That's what we saw on Reformation Day, isn't it? Yeah, we live out in the wilderness, but there remains a rest for the people of God because Jesus came and He accomplished our rest for us. He accomplished peace with God. He accomplished freedom from our sin. And He has accomplished, although not yet revealed, the defeat of our every enemy and the perfection of the creation itself. Just before going to the cross, Jesus said, that was the wrong chapter, sorry. In John 14, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Brothers and sisters, that is is where we shall receive our rest. Until then, we live in booths, we live in shelters, we live in temporary dwellings. And that describes not just our homes, but our very bodies in their broken form. But the Feast of Booths promises that the end is coming. The rest is at hand. You notice that every one of these feasts points to a different aspect of what Jesus came to do. To free us from our enslavement to sin. To cleanse our lives from that sin. To show us how God is bringing us into a new life of which Jesus is the first fruits and how He is empowering us even now to live that new life. And so it goes throughout every stage showing us that we who are His people, we who are the the servants of His kingdom... We have all we need and all we ever will need, but only in Christ. That's how He showed His people of old, where they must look, where their faith must be placed. And brothers and sisters, our faith must be in the same place. And if it is, everything changes. So let us think in this coming week, and I I encourage you, think in this coming week, Leviticus 23, what does this feast mean to me? What does that feast show me about Christ? But don't just ask, what did it show? Ask, what do I do now? 
And may God be glorified as we look to His Son, our King, our Savior. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You are so very faithful. And You have shown us a love more abundant than we could ever have fathomed in the love of Your Son, Jesus. Help us to receive that love with faith unending and with joy that overflows our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.